0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit Stripe.com slash tap iPhone.
1: This is the TED Radio Hour. I'm Guy Raz. So in 2005, Liv Bury had just graduated from college with a degree in astrophysics when she decided to try her hand at something else. Yeah. I hadn't applied for any graduate
4: programs yet because I wanted to sort of take a year off. And, you know, I'd gone, I was, I was only 21 and I felt like I wanted to get a little bit of life experience before I truly went down the academic rabbit hole Hmm. and I needed to find a way to make some money. So, I randomly decided to start applying for TV game shows. I thought, well, you know what? I've always been really good at games. <laughs> I think this could be a, a fun, novel way to maybe make some money and, and get some of this life experience I've been looking for. And before I knew it, I was sort of on the game show circuit believe it or not there is such a thing you know I mean it's it's not formal but there are sort of connections you can make and and you'll you can get into auditions and and one of the shows that I got on turned out to be actually a reality show that was looking for five beginners to teach them how to play poker Hmm. so that's how I got started in that what was it what was the show called um it's uh, it was called ultimate poker showdown and fortunately it's not anywhere on the internet oh no uh, I'm very glad about that because I end up behaving like an absolute child in one of the episodes because i basically everyone thought i was going to win it i thought i was going to win it there was a hundred thousand pounds for a broke student and when i didn't and i ended up playing a hand really badly i had a complete meltdown at the table and ran away crying
1: were you were you on other game shows that were televised
4: yeah um if one of you chooses still
1: I was on one split? called Golden Balls, which was a pretty dark
4: show. Hmm. It was basically the prisoner's dilemma that you were made to play.
3: Whoever chooses the split ball will go home with nothing.
4: In retrospect, if I played it again, I would play it a different way. I have different objectives. Back then, my objective was just to make as much as money as possible.
5: Liv, you have just stolen £6,500. <laughs>
4: It wasn't actually the most lucrative thing. The most lucrative thing that came out of it all was learning to play poker. Yeah. Because after I was on that reality show, even though I didn't win it, I was just absolutely in
1: love with the game. It just was the perfect fit for me. All right, let's talk about the early days. So 2007, you decide, I'm going to go play some poker. And did you have success pretty early on? (laughs) So the first proper
4: tournament that I ever played, and I mean by proper, I mean just not on the TV show, was a local card club in London I went down to, uh, and they had the infamous Tuesday night five pound rebuy. So it meant that if you, you know if you put five pounds in, you get a certain number of chips. If you lose them all for any time within the first hour, you could rebuy in. so it's, as you can imagine, just carnage. everyone's just going all in every hand and so on. But then after that hour is up, that's it. And I remember walking into this club, not not really knowing what to expect. And it was just very dingy, smelly, loud. And I remember being walking in and being aware of these sort of like one hundred and fifty pairs of eyes on me because I was the only girl. <laughs> and I ended up winning somehow. I ended up winning the entire thing wow. that night. And I came home with seven hundred and fifty pounds in cash. And I remember walking in at five in the morning and waking up my boyfriend at the time and just
1: throwing a pile of cash on him and going,
4: "I guess this is what I do now. I guess I'm good at this game."
1: You walked out of there thinking, I'm awesome at this. This is
4: great. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I thought I was the bee's knees, for
1: sure. (laughs) Was the fact that you won that tournament, was was your early success in poker right after you learned the game, was that luck? Oh, for sure.
4: I mean, I'm sure I made some good decisions along the way, but if I was to hazard a guess, you know, to throw a percentage out there, I would hazard that I was in the sort of Ninety-fifth percentile in terms of good luck that could happen to someone in the in a first tournament. Wow, the
1: ninety-fifth percentile of luck, amazing!
4: In, in that in that yeah. situation, yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, I must have been because I definitely was not a good poker player.
1: You just got great cards. Yeah. One big blinds and with over one hundred.
4: I mean, I'm trying to sort of post-hoc rationalisation it in terms of going, oh, yeah, yeah, no, of course I had some degree of self-awareness, but let's be realistic here. I I absolutely thought I was just fantastic. I would like to think that people had, you know, friends around me were sort of reminding me, look, you are getting lucky, you are getting good cards. But because I didn't really have any sort of pre-existing knowledge of what an average run of cards is, I had no point of comparison. All I knew was that when I played...
5: Getting chip count, things would
4: sure more often than not go well and I would win
5: little out of her calling range. and
4: that's honestly one of the hardest parts of poker is figuring out
5: the
6: whether
4: the decisions the you're
6: players. making are good or you
4: are though. just getting lucky
5: Hold up.
6: there are five cards to come
7: five please
1: luck when it's on our side can be this magical thing. And while most of us will catch a little luck at some point in our lives, some people just seem to have a lot more of it. But if that's the case, is that even luck? Well, today on the show, we're going to explore ideas around luck, if we can control it, if we can make our own, and why being at the right place at the right time sometimes doesn't have anything to do with luck at all. And for Liv Bury, luck had a lot to do with winning during her early days of poker. And even after walking away with a lot of cash, Liv's luck hadn't run out just yet. All right, so 2010, you enter a a really big poker tournament called the European Poker Tour. Tell me about that experience.
4: uh, So, yeah, this was about a couple of years into me sort of playing poker full time. I was down in the south of France for something else. And if you remember the Icelandic volcano, I'm not going to try and say its name, that erupted and it shut down all of European airspace. So I couldn't fly home. Yeah. A friend messaged me and they're like, well, seeing as you're in the south of France, did you know there's this big tournament going on in northern Italy? Why don't you go over to that and see if you can get into it? And... The only way I could play in this big tournament was if I won my way in, because the buy-in for the tournament was €5,000, which was too much for my bankroll. But they often have these feeder tournaments where 1 in 10 people win. So I put up €500 to get into that. And I ended up winning this feeder tournament. And six days later, I find myself on the final table playing for... You know, I was guaranteed already, with nine players left, I was guaranteed basically more money than I had in my bank. They're flipping
6: a coin for half a million euros.
4: And then before I knew it, I was down to the final two players. She's got a pair. Let's
6: see the river. The river.
4: And then I won the whole
6: thing. (laughs) It's, it's a it's blank. It. Lippari has done it. Jakob Carlson's the runner-up. Lippari is the champion of EPT San Remo.
1: Um, how much? How much was it? 1.25 million euros. Wow, wow. that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> yep,
4: it was pretty crazy. For <laughs> <Number> 500 dollar buy-in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 500 dollars into about 1.7 million dollars was a it was wow. a very very good week.
1: Here's more from Boree on the TED stage.
4: Now, like poker, life is also a game of skill and luck. And when it comes to the biggest things we care about, health, wealth and relationships, these outcomes don't only depend on the quality of our decision-making, but also the role of life's dice. For example, we can be perfectly health-conscious and still get unlucky with something like cancer, or... We can smoke 20 a day and live to a ripe old age. And this kind of ambiguity can make it hard for us to know how good our strategies are sometimes, especially when we're experiencing a lot of success. For example, back in 2010, I won a really big poker tournament known as the European Poker Tour. And because I'd only been playing full-time for about a year, when I won, I assumed I must be rather brilliant. In fact, I thought I was so brilliant that I not only got rather lazy with studying the game, but I also got more risky. Started playing in the biggest tournaments I could against the very best in the world. And then my profit graph went from a thing of beauty to something kind of sad. Well, the the luck factor caught up with me a little bit. The luck started smoothing out and uh, I got a taste of what it's like to... I mean, I don't know if I ran, you know, significantly by run. I mean, like the cards ran out for me significantly worse than than expectation, but somewhere probably a little below average. But I then had about nine months of not really winning anything at all. And it was a big wake up call Hmm. because I was like, well, you know what? If I want to continue and, and really strive to be the best player I can be in this game, then I need to knuckle down and work and study, because if you don't, the rest of the world will sort of overtake you because every you know out of the pool of however you know millions of people play poker in the world everyone is gradually on average getting better
1: how how much do you think we can shape our luck
4: i mean the number lies somewhere between above zero and beneath infinity <laughs> in terms of how how much i mean we can yeah i mean we're not sort of these Agencyless beings that are just with our hands tied and, well, you know, that's your lot in life and you can't do anything about it. I do absolutely think that while the the future is uncertain and we'll never know exactly which path the future will take, we can shift the likelihoods of the paths that we want it to take. And we can do that by thinking about all the possible outcomes and going, okay, this is a good one, that's a bad one, this is a medium one. What do I need to do to increase the chances of this good one happening? How do I reduce the chances of that one happening? Um, So we, I do think we still have the ability to change the path of our lives based upon our decisions. Mm.
1: Yeah. How much faith do you put in the concept of luck in general?
4: So if you mean by luck, I assume you mean randomness. How much randomness do I think that there is in the world? I mean, not to get too sort of fundamental physics on you, but I mean, even if you look down on the sort of on the quantum mechanical scale, the fundamental nature of matter is ultimately probabilistic, or at least you know it, in a practical sense of purposes it is. And out of this, therefore, it means that this we are live in this incredibly chaotic, World, which is notoriously hard to predict, and the further you sort of try and look into the future, the more randomness plays a part. But yeah, for all intents and purposes, luck and randomness is absolutely sort of inescapable and plays a far bigger part in our lives than I think any of us care to realize. Well, we realize or care to admit luck doesn't give a damn about what's happened to you in the past and it doesn't give a damn about what you think should happen in the future i mean in poker that's another thing you have to learn to accept is you are not going to make the right decision every time and you are going to get owned sometimes and you just have to learn to accept that and shrug it off and and move forward even the again the best player in the world don't play perfectly every time um far from it and yeah i mean not just at the poker table i, I make Bad decisions about my
1: everyday life. Plenty. (laughs) That's Liv Burry. She's a writer and former professional poker player. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas around being lucky. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas around luck, fortune, and chance. When I say luck, what do you think luck is?
7: people often think of luck as something that happens to them. It's actually much more nuanced because there's quite a difference between
1: fortune, chance, and luck. This is Tina Selig. She teaches entrepreneurship at Stanford. And Tina's studied luck. And what makes some people luckier than others? Fortune is things that are out of
7: your control. I'm fortunate to be born in this place and time. I'm fortunate to be healthy. Chance is something you have to do something. You have to roll the dice, or you have to buy a lottery ticket, or you have to apply for a job.
1: And luck? Well, here's Tina's answer from the TED stage.
7: Luck is defined as success or failure apparently caused by chance. Apparently. That's the operative word. It looks like it's chance, because we rarely see all the levers that come into play to make people lucky. But I've realized, by watching so long, that luck is rarely a lightning strike. Isolated and dramatic. It's much more like the wind blowing constantly. Sometimes it's calm, and sometimes it blows in gusts, and sometimes it comes from directions that you didn't even imagine.
1: So, let's assume that if luck is a thing, a real thing, it does pass by most all of us at some point, and some people, it passes by them multiple times. Let's say um, I don't know. You want to increase your luck. What do you do? How do you how do you increase your luck? A
7: lot of it has to do with taking tiny risks. It's getting out of your comfort zone. It's paying attention to things that other people don't pay attention to. It's talking to people who where you're going to learn something new. It's learning something new each day. You know, reading a book, stretching yourself in different directions, clearly, that process sets you up for seeing and then seizing those opportunities. And the key is you can't just see them. You have to see them and then do something about it. About a dozen years ago, I was on an airplane. Normally, I would just put on my headphones and go to sleep, wake up, do some work, but I decided to take a little risk. And I started a conversation with the man sitting next to me. I introduced myself, and I learned that he was a publisher. We ended up having a fascinating conversation. I learned all about the future of the publishing industry. So about 3 quarters of the way through the flight, I decided to take another risk. I opened up my laptop and I shared with him a book proposal. He read it and he said, you know what, Tina, this isn't right for us, but thank you so much for sharing. A couple of months later, I reached out to him and I said, Mark, would you like to come to my class? I'm doing a project on reinventing the book, the future of publishing. He said, great, I'd love to come. So we came to my class. We had a great experience. A few months later, I wrote to him again. This time, I sent him a bunch of video clips from another project my students had done. He was so intrigued, he wanted to meet those students. Now, I have to tell you, I was a little bit hurt, right? <laughs> I mean, he wanted to do a book with my students and not with me, but okay, it's all right. So I invited him to come down, and he and his colleagues came to Stanford, met with the students, and afterwards, we had lunch together. And one of his editors said to me, "'Hey,' have you ever considered writing a book? I said, funny you should ask. And I pulled out the exact same proposal that I had showed his boss a year earlier. Within two weeks, I had a contract, and within two years, the book had sold over a million copies around the world. Now... You might say, oh, you're so lucky. But of course I was lucky. But that luck resulted from a series of small risks I took, starting with saying hello. And anyone can do this, no matter where you are in your life, no matter where you are in the world, no matter even if you think you're the most unlucky person, you can do this by taking little risks that get you out of your comfort zone. You start building a sail to capture
3: luck.
1: So luck requires some risk-taking. Does being younger make it easier than someone, say, you know, my age, in, in my mid-40s, or older, who might be more risk-averse for a variety of reasons?
7: I would could argue the opposite, because... You have in your life a foundation of of lots of successes. There's really not much to lose. You probably also have a lot of situations where you've done things and they've worked out well, and so you've said, wow, I've got a track record of good things happening, so I'm willing to take a risk. A lot, again, comes back to our mindset. What are we afraid of? One of the exercises I do with my students is I do an exercise on risk-taking, and luck. And we talk about what happens when you fail. When you hit bottom, what is it made of? And some students describe the bottom as made as rubber. You know, they bounce, or even a trampoline. Hmm. Some students say the bottom for them is made of glass shards. Some people say it's quicksand. Some people say it's a black hole they fall in and they can't ever get out. And we start talking about this and we realize that everybody has a really different mental model of what happens when they fail. Yeah. And they start realizing that's something they can shape and change. Because if you can turn that boiling hot lava that you're going to fall into into a trampoline, all of a sudden you're willing to take some risks because you know it's not going to hurt.
1: What happens? I mean, it's not always possible for some people to take those risks because there isn't a trampoline, right? So is it just about the mental architecture of the way you see failure or or could it be a real thing that, that it's actually really dangerous?
7: You're obviously right. There are times in which you go, you know, listen, I need shelter. I need food. I need health care. And I'm going to make some decisions to make sure that I have all of those in place. That That's realistic. However, I also believe that our mindset locks us in so often to making decisions that don't allow us to see all the possibilities. Uh, One of the things I often think about is if you took several people who all had nothing. One person had nothing, never had anything. One person has nothing now but used to have a lot and lost it. And maybe someone who has nothing now but knows they're going to inherit a lot of money in the future. You have these three people who all have nothing But they're going to interact with the world really differently based on their history and their perceived future. Hmm. And I think we need to be aware of the constraints that we put on ourselves based on the stories we tell about where we've been and where we're going. So, yes, sometimes people are born into terrible circumstances, and sometimes luck is a lightning bolt that hits us with something wonderful or something terrible. But the winds of luck are always there. And if you're willing to take some risks, if you're willing to really go out and show appreciation, and you're willing to really look at ideas, even if they're crazy, through the lens of possibilities, you build a bigger and bigger sail to catch the winds of luck. Thank you.
1: That's Tina Seelig. She's a professor at Stanford University's Department of Management Science and Engineering. You can see her full talk... At Ted.com. On the show today, ideas about luck. So, I think luck is a complicated word.
8: This is Amy Hunter. So, do I think people are sometimes lucky, like if you're at a carnival and you keep winning all the time? Sure. Do I think you're lucky if you win the lottery?
1: Absolutely. That was pure luck. Amy is a community activist based in St. Louis.
8: But I think more importantly, the way that people use it in the context of it um, often relates to fortune of good things that are happening to you because of something. Um, Because you've done the right thing or because you went to the right school or something that's related to something that actually isn't lucky, but more tied to a socioeconomic factor or or diversity factor or racial factor. And so although the word is used pretty casually, like I'm a really lucky person or lucky to be born to these parents, I think it also gets us off the hook sometimes in like trying to figure out solutions on inequity Hmm. and systems that keep people from being quite as lucky. And I think that probably hurts people's feelings to hear that they aren't lucky, but they are benefactors from systems that oppress certain populations of people over and over again. And so I think you're not born lucky. The system is structured in a way that some people are born in an oppressive or targeted state and other people are born in a privileged state, and that has nothing to do with luck.
1: And Amy says one of the predictors for how supposedly lucky you are is your zip code. Here's more from Amy Hunter on the TED stage.
8: So a lot of times people will come to our town and they will ask, where's the best school district? Where should I live? And they will be given some advice, usually around zip code status. 63121 is Normandy. It's an under-resourced, unaccredited school district. 63124 is Ladue. It is like a sky and river parallel universe. So what zip code you're in does matter. So I started doing a little research about where zip codes were located and who was in which zip code and what that meant for schools. There are a couple of key, really important moments in U.S. history that we want to pay really good attention to. Places where the government was helping with land ownership, so VA loans, GI bills after World War II. Really important. Really important because white Americans that were kind of working class moved from working class to middle class in just the same generation. It is one of our largest government handouts we've ever seen, and it was unequally distributed, meaning that African-American people didn't get to access those resources in the same ways, even though they had served their countries. But it forever changed the trajectory around intergenerational wealth and who was going to be located in a lucky zip code So we're paying attention to how some people got lucky and how some
1: people aren't. So, okay, let's um, let's dig into this idea of lucky zip codes a a bit more. Um, What are we what are we talking about here?
8: Yeah, here in St. Louis, they're they're very easy to identify, particularly within the educational system, but also the healthcare system. So we know um, that if you're born in uh, zip codes that are predominantly white zip codes, um, your life expectancy is greater. The chance of losing a baby within the first year, so if mortality, um, decreases quite a bit. So I think although we were articulating these lucky zip codes in a way that made people feel fortunate or that they had worked really hard to be in those zip codes, if we really kind of peeled back the story, we would see that, that had luck had very little if anything to do with it at all.
1: It sounds It sounds almost like what you're saying is that luck, at least in the context of of the U.S. or similar countries is, is manufactured and is available to certain people.
8: Absolutely. And it's easy to sell. It's sexy, right? So if I can tell you, you do all these things, you're going to be really, really lucky, then it's easy to sell and it's easy for us to ignore the people who aren't quite as lucky. That's cognitive dissonance in play. Hmm. The ways in which we have been trained to justify inhumane treatment sometimes... To rationalize unfair systems um, and allow us to still remain happy, and so as long as we can kind of intellectualize or um, verbally rationalize, then again we don't have to look at the structural nuances that have allowed some people to be more advantaged than others.
1: And so it allows, it allows. People with privilege, or people with access, or people who don't experience being followed in a department store, or being pulled over by the police, or being denied a loan—to say, "Well, that's not me. I'm not. That's. I, I'm not part of that."
8: Absolutely, it it allows this individualistic culture to permeate in U.S. culture in particular, um, versus a collectivist culture where we're all in here together. Mm. Instead, cognitive dissonance says, "Well." I got to take care of me and my family. I can't really worry about that right now. Um, Hey, you know, a a teenager was shot today, but it wasn't my teenager, right? So the cognitive distance part keeps us from getting close. Because if we were close, if we really cared for one another as kin, we would fight for each other. And we would fight to dismantle the systems that keep people oppressed. How many people in here have a woman or a man that you feel is like your brother or sister? Yeah, okay. That's fictive kinship. Fictive kinship means that people who are not biologically related to you, you treat as if they are kin. What's really cool about fictive kinship is that it allows us to be connected and feel connected even though we're not biologically related. We can solve what is going on here in St. Louis, but also globally, if we use fictive kinship as a way to get close to each other and look for solutions. It is the belief that something has happened to make that so. It is the distance from each other that we are not treating each other as kin that doesn't have us working towards solutions. It is our lack of falling in love with one another that has given us the situation we're currently in today. And this is so solvable.
1: Why do you think so many people feel threatened when the conversation around privilege and race are are, are are brought up.
8: I think some people, quite honestly, lack the imagination of creating a better world. That this world that they have, no matter how messed up it is, is something that they're very familiar with and used to. <laughs> and I, I think the cognitive dissonance and the physical geographic perspectives of people being in the really lucky zip codes, they have no idea what's happening in the unlucky zip codes. They had never gone to a city school that lacked resources to find out what the differences were between those children and their own biological children's educational experiences. And, I mean, I think ignorance can only last for so long. And then when we find out and we know something more, I think it calls us to do something different and be better than we were before we had knowledge. When my son was 12 he walked home less than a mile away from our house. And he saw police officers circling, and he knew he was going to be stopped. He was about five houses away from home. And sure enough, at 12, he got stopped. So he came home to me because he was 12, and he was flustered. And he was asking all these questions about what happened and why it happened. And so he said, you know, Mom, I, I want to know, like, Is it because I'm black? And I said, I don't don't know. Maybe. He said, well, I knew you were home, and I actually thought about running home to you. And I said, whatever you do, don't run. And he looked at me, and he said, Mommy, I just want to know how long will this last? And then I looked at my 12-year-old son, and I said to him, for the rest of your life, I want this to stop. I honestly believe that we are the right people to make a change in this community, to be role models and examples of how to get this right and create the kind of world and reality that we'd like to see, to create a more equitable society where there are no lucky zip codes. And when people come to our town and ask us, where should I live for a really good school district? We can tell them, anywhere you'd like. There are no lucky zip codes here. All of our schools are good. All of our children are doing well. Thank
1: you. That's Amy Hunter. She's a longtime community activist in St. Louis and currently does diversity training for Boeing. You can find the rest of her talk at ted.npr.org. On the show today, ideas about luck. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED
6: Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viori.com/slash NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.
6: This message comes from NPR sponsor Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices, and they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about what it means to be lucky. If I just saw you on the street, uh, what do you what do you look
5: like? Uh, you know, I've got a little bit of gray hair, and uh, I'm kind of a slender build, probably a slightly above average height. An ordinary looking middle-aged white guy in Canada. This is Mark Setcliffe. It's a very British name. Mm.
1: And by all accounts, you could say Marx had a very successful career.
5: I host a daily four-hour talk show here in Ottawa on everything that's going on in the world, in local news, national, international news. But
1: Marx also launched several businesses.
5: A running magazine, a local business journal, a community newspaper in my neighborhood.
1: Among a lot of other things.
5: I do some consulting work, and I volunteer, and I'm a marathon runner as well.
1: So, I mean... Looking at this from the outside, I think most people would conclude that your quote-unquote success um, has a lot to do, if not all to do, with your hard work.
5: Would you agree with that? I think we can all look at the narrative of our lives and say, I worked really hard and here I am. Therefore, I'm here because I worked really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think you can look around the world and see that there are lots of people – Who work hard, who don't enjoy the success that I've enjoyed, uh, who don't have the wealth that I have or the opportunities that I've had in my life. And so, to me, while hard work is an element of success in life, it's not the essential element. So, what is? I think the secret sauce is luck.
1: And Mark says that most of his good luck was given to him before he was
5: even born. My grandfather, on my mother's side, was born on the island of Mauritius off the coast of Africa, and he was ethnically Chinese. His parents were from China. And uh, my grandfather ended up studying in French as he grew up in Mauritius. And because of that, he went to university in Paris, and that's where he met my grandmother, who was born and raised in Paris. And they eventually moved to China with my mom and her sisters. And they spent a long time in China, lived there for about 20 years before they finally moved to Canada. And uh, eventually my mom and dad ended up in the same workplace and and got married and and had a family. Just the chances of being born in Canada, as I was, are about 1 in 400. Mark Sutcliffe picks up the story from the TED stage. I won the lottery the day that I was born. I didn't get handed a check for a million dollars but I was given an opportunity that was worth at least that much. Now, in a marathon, everybody starts at the same time. When the gun goes off, we all have an equal chance of running a good race and getting to the finish line. In fact, in big races like this one or the Boston Marathon, they give you a little chip that you can put on your shoe so that if you do start way back from the start line because there are so many people in front of you, They don't start counting your time until you actually cross the start line. That way it's fair for everybody. But life isn't like that. If you don't start at the front of the pack, you don't get a computer chip that levels the playing field. There are so many ways that luck creates advantages and disadvantages from the day we are born. If you aren't born in Canada or another Western country, then you start farther back. If you're a visible minority, you start farther back. If your parents are poor, you start farther back. If you have a physical disability or you develop a mental illness, then you start farther back. And in so many places in the world, if you're a girl, you start farther back. And again, there's no computer chip that evens everything out. You carry that disadvantage for your entire life.
1: You know, Mark, we were just um, hearing from Amy Hunter, and it sounds like both of you are saying a similar version of the same thing, which is that luck is often the same thing as privilege. That, you know, in, in other words, luck seems to be something that that people who have sort of, you know, inherent privileges, that they have more of it or, or they get more of it.
5: Yeah, I think there definitely is an element of uh, the luckier you are, the more luck you get in life. So uh, you can be in a position of good fortune, and that exposes you to more opportunities to experience good fortune. Mm. And sometimes we're we're misled by high-profile examples of people who are not born into privilege, but are successful anyway. Mm. And those are the exceptions, not the rule. We love those stories. They inspire us. But in a way, they also mislead us into thinking that that means the race is fair when it's not. The fact is, thousands and thousands of people who start life at the back of the pack never even have a chance. We put way too much emphasis on hard work, and we fail to recognize the role of the ovarian lottery that puts so many people, including me, at the front of the pack. In life, in so many ways, you can't win unless you start with a lot of luck.
1: is the narrative that we tell ourselves, especially in the United States, that merit is what drives success, a narrative that most people believe, is that is that self-delusional?
5: I think it's a little bit delusional, but I don't want to take away from the people who work hard, and I don't want to take away the element of hard work. You can be handed a great opportunity and do nothing with it, and there's nothing wrong with – feeling a sense of accomplishment if you do work hard and you achieve something. But we overstate that in life. Hmm. And I think it's just, it's a compelling narrative that society in general has an interest in perpetuating. When you look at the obesity problem and you conclude that the only reason some people have trouble with their weight is because they've made bad decisions in life, then it's easy to say, we don't need to find a solution to that problem. We just need everybody to try harder and to eat less. When you start to look at the more complex factors that contribute to obesity, the environment, how the food environment has changed in the last 50 years, and and some of the decisions we need to confront as a society, there's some hard work involved in that for all of us. Mm. uh, And collectively, we've got to make changes. And it's easier sometimes to just say, well, no, we just need to educate people and let them make their own decisions. Leave it up to individuals. That's a more convenient storyline than one where we confront some difficult truths. When you see the world through the lens of merit, it makes us possessive and protective. If I earned it, I should get to keep it. It makes us think in terms of scarcity rather than abundance. It makes us talk about... Building walls to keep other people out. When you see the world in terms of luck, through the lens of luck, it makes us humble, kind, generous. It makes us want to share our good fortune, to spread it around. It makes us think about opening doors to other people.
1: All right. So let's let's accept that luck um, plays an enormous, if not the most important, role in outcomes. But could we also say that if we begin to understand that and acknowledge it, we could actually make it so effort could eventually determine outcomes?
5: I hope so. I think we've emerged from times in the past where the limits were much greater on people to move beyond their circumstances in childhood. But I think the progress is incremental and and generational. Yeah. Um, I'm hopeful, though, that if we start to acknowledge that success is not purely a result of hard work, that we will find ways to level the playing field, that we will find ways to give more opportunity to the people who are not born with it. Because, uh, you know, this is not a zero-sum game. I don't lose if more people have a chance at winning in life. And in fact, we're all better off because we're unlocking the potential of so many people who never even get to have their chance at the plate.
1: That's Mark Sutcliffe. He's a journalist and entrepreneur. You can watch his full talk at ted.npr.org. On the show today, ideas about luck and whether success is determined by chance or hard work or something more complicated than that.
3: I think that you have to work really hard and get a lot of help.
1: This is Ishana Smith.
3: And that's like sort of what people don't want to talk about is that like you need a lot of doors to be opened for you.
1: Ishana is the CEO of Urban Alliance. And our
3: focus is to support low-income students to be able to access early and meaningful workforce experience.
1: Ishana grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood in LA, and for most of her life, she thought the reason she got out of there was because of luck. Here's more from Ishana Smith on the TED stage.
3: Growing up, it seemed to come down to the luck of the draw as to who made it out and who didn't. And I used to think that I was one of the ones who just happened to get lucky. My mom was 19 and single when she had me in 1975. And three years later, I was the lone flower girl in my parents' wedding. And two years after that, my little sister was born. And I still felt lucky because even though I was the one who had to grab my little sister and carry her out of the room when my dad began to hit my mom, I felt lucky that I saw firsthand the life that I didn't want. My mom eventually left my dad and we moved to California for a new start. And she did the very best that she could to raise myself, my sister, and eventually a third daughter largely on her own. We arrived in Los Angeles in 1984 at a peak time in gang activity, and we settled into a pretty violent neighborhood. There were regular shootings and violence all around, and it all came to a head during the Los Angeles riots in 1993 when I was just a junior in high school. Over the years, my sister and I have experienced two very different life paths. Mine has led me to this stage, and hers is an everyday struggle to raise three kids largely on her own and to do daily battle with generational poverty that chases each day. I used to think that the difference between our life paths had to be due to chance or luck or fate, for she is no less smart, talented, or capable. Because what you have to understand is that while we grew up poor, we were surrounded by countless amazing and brilliant folks who had many talents, but no opportunities for those talents to flourish. And it seemed that only a very lucky
1: few made it out. So when you saw who made it out of your neighborhood and and who didn't, you, you just assumed it had to do with luck.
3: That's how I began to think about it, that my sister was doing something completely different and I was trying to figure that out. But also I was thinking about all of the girls that I grew up with and... All of us were, you know, young, talented, um, happy young girls. And then when we graduated, I realized that I may have been the only one of us out of sort of eight or nine girls that I grew up with on my block who either they had had a baby senior year or they had one right after high school. So I was like, okay, maybe I'm just I'm just one of the lucky people. Um, So, yeah, for a long time, I I was like, that has to be the answer.
1: And I mean... You could understandably look at that and say, I got lucky.
3: You could. What happened to me potentially is a form of luck. But what I realized is that if there were more of what I had received, then it wouldn't be left to chance. As I've gotten older and reflected on my childhood, I now know that it wasn't luck at all. I got out of my neighborhood because of purposeful and meaningful intervention by adults in my community who made it possible for me to have a better life. I got my very first job the summer after my ninth grade year at Earl R. Hupp CPA. And I can say again that what saved my life wasn't luck, but those adults in my community who made it their duty to make sure that I was exposed to realities outside of my own, including their help and support with me in getting me my first job. At Earl R. Hupp CPA, I had built up a pretty strong reputation and I was considered to be a real part of the team. And what this experience taught me more than anything else is that no matter where I was from, no matter what I didn't have, that I could fit in with people from very different worlds and experiences than my own. It taught me that I was good enough. It gave me hope. I recently came across a quote that said, talent is universal, but opportunity is not. The question I think for us as a community and as a society is how can we create more access to opportunity?
1: So aside from starting to create opportunities, how do you think we could change it on a massive scale? Like how would we create a future where everybody had exposure to quote-unquote luck?
3: That is a big question. (laughs) We've been, you know, trying to figure out, I think, as a country for a while. But on a big, big scale, I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is Our educational system. I mean, I know that's that's huge to to attack, but still today, you know, Brown versus Board of Education being in 1954, we are they are still every day litigating to try and make sure that public schools are evenly equipped with the right resources and that the schools in you know, black neighborhoods uh, versus white neighborhoods or other neighborhoods are not you know, having these unequal resources. And we're still fighting that fight. So I think, you know, high school is that last free public space before you're out into the world. And, you know, if we can reform those systems and make our schools a little bit more um, equal in terms of resources, that will go a long way to making sure that people don't have to rely on
1: luck. That's Ishana Smith. She's the CEO of Urban Alliance. You can see her full talk at TED.NPR.org. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on luck this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motasham, James Delahousie, Melissa Gray, and JC Howard. With help from Daniel Shukin, Nia Venkat, and Dareth Gales. Our intern is Katie Monteleone. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learn. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections.